Right, so Renegade Reports, uh, special episodes uh, coming to you from uh, Johannesburg in South Africa, for those of you international viewers. Um, doing this as a combined uh, show, so uh, us on audio, there's the Renegade Report. And the Gadfather himself on video. Yeah. Well, you, al- you always want to use my good looks to draw people in, so that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. 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 And that, that glorious beard. There you go, there you go. Uh, thank you for having me on. No, well, thank you. Uh, it's a great pleasure to speak to you, Mr. Mister Sad. My pleasure. Please feel free to call me Gad, no problem. No great. problem. Ramon, you want to get cracking? So, yeah. So, so Gad, I mean, here you are, a man with a, with a PhD, with, uh, you know, a very comfortable job, I assume. Why go after these funny, wicked social justice worries on campuses? Like, what? what you got so much to lose by doing that. Right. No, you're right. Uh I think it's just my unique genetic makeup, which basically makes me uh, triggered, to use a term that they love, by, frankly, to use a, a crass colloquialism bullshit, right? I, so, in other words, I pursue truth, whether it be in my, when I wear my hat as an academic, as a scientist, but I also feel that uh, academics should get out of their bubbles and tackle uh, attacks on reason, attacks on truth in public discourse. And so when I see these folks carrying on, I feel that it is, I'm compelled. I feel that it's part of my actual professional duties to weigh in. And so I don't view uh, my job as simply one to, that, you know, pursue scientific. It, I basically pursue truth in every possible way that I can. And to the extent that some of these movements are espousing nonsense, I attack it. So, so do you believe like most of the um, ills and most of the things they are discussing and want to change? Do you think it's all it's all bullshit, so to speak, or maybe they have a point, but their methods are a bit, uh, you know, off color? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, of course, racism exists. Of course, sexism exists. Mm-hmm. Of course, bigotry exists. And to the extent that we want to constantly improve our societies, we can tackle these things. Uh, the problem comes when uh, there is an ethos of victimology whereby people start constructing these narratives of victimhood where really there is no, you know, there is no victim here. And so that's really the problem is that it, it, uh, it cheapens true racism, true bigotry. I mean, and, and again, one of the things that makes me someone who's difficult for the social justice warriors to handle is because my personal history allows me to stand up on the pedestal and say, look, I won't tolerate your bullshit precisely because I know what it is to escape a place where my head was going to be decoupled from the rest of my body. And therefore, the fact that we don't take a survey at the start of every class to ask students what their preferred gender identity is today, uh, no, that's not a serious issue. Of course, people can, can have gender identity issues and they could come and see their professors. And if the professor is empathetic, then he or she can address their concern. But to ask that we, you know, uh, poll every single student, uh, what is your identity today is extending uh, you know, the argument. And so I try to sort of modulate what constitutes actual uh, attempts to fight injustice and bullshit ones. Um, we haven't seen too much on the uh, Canadian campuses. Maybe we're, we're not uh, in touch with your, your media. Um, obviously, we know about all the stuff happening on the American campuses. Uh, and we've got our own problems in South Africa, uh, which are kind of related. Uh, is uh, there the similar type of thing going on in your campuses? Do they echo the American, the American sort of system? Right. I mean, I don't think it's quite as bad. Uh, and there might be several reasons for that. It could be, for example, that generally speaking, Canadian students pay a lot less for their education. And certainly mm. in the Quebec context where I live, uh, you pay a lot less than the rest of Canada. And so maybe that already serves to create less entitlement in student. That could be one possibility. Whereas in the United States, if you're going to a private university somewhere, you might be paying fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 yeah. per year. 
which is way, way higher than what we would pay in Quebec. And so you don't see it to the same extent, but you already start seeing, you know, intrusions of this type of thinking. I, I recently gave a invited lecture at the University of Ottawa earlier this winter uh, where I talked about the thought police and polit political correctness. And I came up with a few Canadian-specific examples, one of which was this case of a professor at the University of British Columbia out in Vancouver, uh, where she basically had been denied tenured and then argued that given her heritage, she's a native, you know, indigenous. I don't remember what the politically first, correct first term nation, is. First nation, please, get First, first nation. nation. First nations, fair enough. Uh, although that might be, is that how they call, is that how they're called in the U.S.? The way they're called, the indigenous people are called differently in the U.S. versus in Canada. So you don't want to make that politically correct mistake. Oh, but in okay. any case, she, she was an indigenous person and she argued that in her tradition, uh, knowledge is disseminated orally. It's an oral tradition. And so to expect people to have her publish things in the written form, <laughs> was an attack on her culture, and it actually went now to a hate, uh, I don't know what it's, hate speech tribunal or yeah. human rights tribunal, and, and they're actually listening to the case. And so, yeah, the lunacy has come to Canada. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about, uh, please, uh, you're welcome to ask us any questions as well, whenever sure. you like, but uh, tell us a little bit about your prime minister, um, who I know you're uh, a big yes. fan of. <laughs> Huge fan. Uh, well, Justin Trudeau, uh, facetiously, he's referred to in several ways. One is hair boy. Uh, some call him shiny pony, uh, pretty boy. Uh, number one, he is a handsome guy. He's a young guy. He's got beautiful, lustrous hair. Uh, but he's a man who, I mean, there are two broad issues that I think are problematic with him. One is that until he entered politics, you couldn't have identified somebody who was less accomplished in life. I mean, I mean, literally, it would not, be not even Bernie Sanders. Not even Bernie Sanders. That's right. So he was a guy who, you know, had been a substitute drama teacher. He had been a snowboarder. Uh, no disrespect intended for snowboarders, but that's not usually the fast path to being prime minister of a major country. Mm. And so he had done pretty much nothing. Then he entered politics on the wave of his dad's name and uh, eventually rose to become prime minister. Now, that's okay. That's fine. He did it. The problem is that when you talk about social justice warriors and the guys that I call the ostrich brigade or the castrati. castrati, the castrati brigade, it is difficult to identify somebody who epitomizes that creature more than Justin Trudeau. So, for example, on every possible issue that you could think of, he couldn't be more wrong on that issue. So he just espouses all of the sort of feel good, la la land stuff of such social justice warriors. And it's grotesque because you expect somebody who's leading a country to have a bit more groundedness in reality. And so that's my problem with him. Because I, I don't know if it is true, but I saw a quote. It says something to the effect that if you kill a terrorist, they win. <laughs> you know, it's I, funny I, that I still you... don't know what on earth that means. Yeah, so I had actually, as, as you <clears throat> probably know, I, I do a lot of satirical stuff and a lot of sarcastic stuff because I actually think that satire is really the surgeon's scalpel to cut through the BS. But so, and that's why oftentimes you have religions that, refute, that uh, uh, forbid humor, right? They forbid yeah. satire precisely yeah. because it is such a powerful methodology to uh, get through all this nonsense. Well, I had actually satirized that position before he had even <laughs> stated so. Now, I don't know if... if if that particular meme is true or not. But I had written something to the effect, you probably can go find it somewhere on Twitter, where I had said, you know, if we kill our enemies before they behead <laughs> us, then we lose. On the other hand, if we let them behead us, then, and then we win because we died without being <laughs> racist. And, and then, you know, a few months later, uh, Shiny Pony apparently comes out with it. It's, it's breathtaking. I mean, he, he's a guy who, when he, before he was prime minister, he was a member of parliament, uh, he had gotten very, very upset, sort of very petulant and indignant when someone had referred to, uh, I can't remember, exactly, I think it was honor, uh, honor killings and child brides mm. and female genital mutilation and all of these practices as barbaric. Uh, he didn't lend his voice to agreeing with the fact that those things were barbaric. Rather, he was very angry that someone would use barbaric as the word to describe it. Eventually, there was a backlash against 
you know, his completely broken moral compass, and then he sort of uh, remodulated his right. But I mean, again, to, for somebody to not be outraged by child brides, but rather be outraged that we call it barbaric, is somebody who doesn't have his moral compass straight. Well, it's moral, moral relativism at its best, though. Uh, for for a leader of a country such as Canada to have to be morally relativist is, yeah, it's odd. I mean, that would never fly in 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 most countries in the world. I mean, if Donald Trump comes out and says, uh, you know, I will pardon you know you only if you're a Mexican. I mean, he will lose all credibility whatsoever. So does it? Well, he, do, do these sorry, things? Sorry, do these things like strengthen just Justin Trudeau, or or does he really believe them, or is he playing a well, political game here? He actually comes from a the, the the granddaddy of that lineage, right? His dad, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was the architect of the the official doctrine of multiculturalism. Uh, and now, multiculturalism people sort of mistake what it means. There are sort yeah. of two two meanings of multiculturalism, right? There's sort of the colloquial meaning meaning of you know a plurality of people, right? Mm-hmm. This is a multicultural university. That's a good thing. Right. Multiculturalism <laughs> as a political philosophy is the idea that when people come to a country, you should allow them to exist in their own sort of cultural realities mm. without ever expecting them to necessarily assimilate within the greater melting pot. And so one of the fundamental sort of offshoots of that is moral relativism, which is, well, who are we to judge whether they gouge the eyes of every fourth child to borrow an example from Sam Harris, right? I mean, who are we to, to, to pronounce a position if they want to cut off the clitorises of their little girls? That's their culture. We have no right to weigh in. And so multiculturalism and moral relativism go hand in hand. Well, I mean, they, they do say that about other cultures, but not, for example, the, the Western culture, right? So uh, Western culture is, to, you know, separation of states and church and freedom of speech and individual rights. Uh, but that's attacked often. Often enough right. by the regressives, but if it's uh, Islamic tradition of uh, you know female gen- genital mutilation, that's the greater the greater evil to Please say that on. it's barbaric. It's not. It's not Islam's uh, tradition. Don't you listen to Reza Aslan? All oh, right, it's African. Yes. That makes it better. It's African. Yeah, that's that makes I, it far I, I better. Trust, I trust that you are both familiar with my Aslan. Uger Dakota five thousand. Yes. Yes, we yeah. have seen it. Yeah, seen it. Uh, put place my order. Oh, Place there, my order. Do you have one with you? Oh, there we go. <laughs> you, you might even hear. You hear the sound? Yeah. It's actually decoding our conversation. There it is. I always have it handy in case I get inspired for my next sad truth clip. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, uh, it, it it is part of the 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 the, the ethos of pro- progressivism. Uh, in quotes, because I don't think these people are truly progressive, to basically self-flagellate at the altar of political correctness. And one of the ways that you do that is by always looking inwards for everything that's bad, right? It's progressive for me to say that Western culture is evil. The the true problem with all maladies of the world is Western culture. Mm -hmm. That's progressive. But to point to that a religion of those disenfranchised brown people, well, that's just racist and grotesque. And the reality is that most people in academia actually believe this nonsense. Uh, and and I've, I've said this before, maybe I can mention it again. Uh, sure. Uh, I, I had a, and I, I like to retell the story because it's so powerful in explaining exactly what we're talking about. Uh, when I post things on my private uh, Facebook page, uh, you know, criticizing anything. Uh, if it's something that I'm criticizing, say, Christianity or Judaism, some some Hasidic Jew on a uh, on a plane uh, puts a thing around him. I don't know if you've seen that. He puts sort of a, a bubble, a plastic bubble for yeah. some really, it's yeah. some nonsense. Uh, then, you know, people will like it. You know, it's, it's progressive. I'm attacking religion. If I, if I criticize some uh, senator, Republican senator from Alabama who is mm. denying evolution, well, that's very progressive. You know, I'm an evolutionary scientist and it's progressive to attack. But if I attack something of Islam, well, first of all, not only is there silence, but there is blowback. And the, mm. the, the, the example that I like to give is I once posted a clip of an Iraqi astronomer. Uh, this is this was in Arabic, but with subtitles, where he was basically saying that it is incorrect to argue that the earth is not flat. And then he refers to some Quranic verse. Yeah, I remember this. Dem- right? Now, 
I mean, it, it's difficult to imagine a more nonsensical position. I mean, if anybody else said that without it being under the protection of the cloak of religion, you would place him in a mental institution. But the fact that he could sort of invoke the Quran, then, you know, it was off limits. And so I get a reply from an evolutionary scientist, a fellow evolutionary scientist. Her position was, why is it that you're ganging up on these poor people? What's the point of you showing this? So she wasn't offended as an academic, as a pursuer of the truth. She wasn't offended that a fellow scientist was espousing the idea that the earth is flat. She was upset that I would point to him saying that. It's, it's just it's yeah. lunacy. Yeah, mind-boggling. So, so the identity politics versus the ideas. Um, I just wanted to find out, we've got similar issues in that um, our universities are sort of halves of uh, the left's uh, now sort of becoming a regressive left, uh, essentially uh, Marxists. Um, they have been for a very long time, and, and I don't think it's unique at all to our country. Um, how is this playing out in your in, in your sort of daily society? So uh, I'll give you sort of some background to South Africa. We have an ongoing narrative of um, what's being described by certain race baiters who literally write books uh, about how racist everyone is. Um, that uh, every week uh, there's a racist incident. Um, the latest one is a, a, a church pastor this past week stood up and, and told his congregation that, uh, you know, black people and white people should basically mix together and essentially that you shouldn't uh, sort of begrudge white people who have money because uh, they may have worked for their money. Um, and this is now the latest racist sort of scandal in South Africa. Um so we have that on an ongoing basis, uh, virtually weekly. Um, that's part of our sort of social justice and, and sort of very left kind of uh, attacking identity politics thinking. And what's happening in, in sort of Canadian discourse? Uh, well, I mean, you see some of that stuff. You see a lot of cases of uh, supposed Islamophobia, right? Uh, and this, you see it not only in Canada, but also in the U.S., uh, the sort of the Islamophobia machine likes to drum up endless examples of how, you know, uh, uh, Muslims are having, you know, are afraid to come out of their house because there is such a dangerous environment for them. I mean, the reality is nothing could be further from the truth, right? There is no place where uh, Muslims are able to practice their religion in complete freedom and in complete equality than what is afforded to them in the West. That's why they leave the, their countries to come to the West. But yet it is important for those who wish to peddle this idea of Islamophobia to convince people that, you know, on a daily basis, you know, uh, uh, Muslims are being mistreated, their the hijabs are being taken off their thing, they're, they're afraid to walk out of the mosque. Now, of course, there is cases of bigotry. But, for example, the FBI statistics came out. Every year they come out with their sort of yearly hate-based crimes. And uh, guess who comes out uh, number one in terms of being the greatest victims of hate crimes? Way, way higher than Muslims. This is in the context of the U.S. Can you, can you guess which group? Jews. Exactly right. Really? Yeah. By Jews. Wow. By far, I don't. I don't remember the exact details, and, and somebody will correct me, or we can probably post the link later uh, at the bottom of the of the show. Uh, it's probably something to the order of five to one, but that's not a good narrative because then it shows that Jews remain the most stigmatized and most. Uh, you know, attacked group, it's much easier to convince or much nicer to convince people if you are in the Islamophobia industry that it's really the, the Muslims now who are afraid to walk out of their house. But that, the data is simply not true. Mm. It's uh, not there. I like it that you call it the Islamophobia industry mm. because we also create, we're trying to create a little, a little narrative around the racism industry in South Africa. So obviously South Africa is fairly unique in that there was a, you know, a state based, you know, racial discrimination for, for half a century. And that's been gone for 22 years and there's still repercussions and we're still getting through it. Um, but, but over here, it's, it's like the only politically correct prejudice to have is against white people. You can say whatever you want against right. the white male. You can also, by the way, say anything you want against black people who say anything positive about white people. So, um, <laughs> well, not, not the correct blacks, right? Yeah. So, right, so, right. so if you're, uh, we've got uh, um, um, our governing political parties, the African National Congress. I think they're well, well, well known worldwide. Nelson Mandela's party, basically, um, and they've been in power for for more than twenty years. 
the uh, main opposition party to them actually uh, is called the Democratic Alliance, and they have a black leader um, by the name of Musi Maimani, and uh, he happens to be the first black leader of the sort of opposition party in in the the, the new South Africa, as it's called. Um, and uh, he regularly gets uh, basically racist attacks from his fellow blacks um, in the, the African National Congress because they they cannot uh, reconcile that he's on an, a different, on opposite side of the political spectrum, so to speak. Well, listen, uh, many of the guests that I've had on my show who are either ex-Muslim uh, 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 or uh, still practicing Muslims but who criticize Islam uh, are exactly facing the same issues as this gentleman that you just spoke of, right? Uh, I mean, I haven't had Ayan Hirsi Ali on, on my show yet, but no. Ayan Hirsi Ali, mm. Asra, Rom- Asra Nomani, who has been on my show, Tarek mm. Tarek Fata, Fata. Uh, Salim Mansour, uh, uh, Rahil Raza, uh, Majid Nawaz, who hasn't been on my show, but who also suffers from these kinds mm. of attacks. So if you are an insider and you are not adhering to the narrative, then of course you are either an Uncle Tom if you are black yeah. or you are, I think the term is native informant if you are uh, Muslim and you speak out against Islam. And so anything mm-hmm. will do as long as we can uh, shut you down, shut the narrative. Uh, but I wanted to mention, I mean, speaking of the Islamophobia industry, uh, uh, this is an example that I actually also have discussed uh, in a very few forums. Uh, there, and since you were asking about the Canadian context, here's an example of social justice warriors in Canada. So this woman at Queen's University, uh, student, decided to don the hijab uh, to demonstrate, hopefully she was hoping to demonstrate that there would be widespread bigotry against her. Are, are you familiar with this case? Have you heard me talk about this before? Uh, no, 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 not this no, one. Okay, so this uh, student at Queen's University donned the hijab for, I think, 18 days, hoping to identify, you know, rampant, virulent bigotry against uh, someone who was dressed that way. And uh, to her surprise, she found out that people were incredibly tolerant, kind, respectful, polite. Guess what she concluded as a result of that uh, field experiment? Something absurd. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be as absurd as possible. Um, put, put, on, put on your steroid, castrati, ostrich mindset on and give me your best shot. Sure. Jonathan, what help can you have? Uh, I would think maybe they knew that – uh, I don't know. Well, yeah, well, they, well, they, you have to maintain the narrative. They were that, they that were organizing crazy. groups to come and uh, obviously attack her, kill her family, um, do all these horrible things. Um, no, and and, much, and, and a month much. wasn't enough time. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't enough time to rally the troops. To, to rally enough? For the, for no, the, uh, the of course uh, you got a ten thousand to one. You know you've got to you got to get lots of troops. To, organization to, for, yeah. for the oppression yeah. to really work. Good, good attempt, but no. It turns out that by the people being incredibly polite, respectful, kind to her, this was a manifestation of their latent hatred towards Muslims, right? Because they're overcompensating, yeah. right? I mean, why would they be nice to her if it weren't because deep inside they, they really hold very xenophobic, right? So if they were intolerant towards her, this would be a manifestation of Islamophobia. If they are incredibly respectful and kind to her, it's a manifestation of Islamophobia. We call this non-falsifiability in science. <laughs> yes. That's why it belongs in the world of quackery. Well, it's it, as circular as it gets. Uh, like, see here, the white privilege is, is a big argument against people like us, right? A Jew and a French Arab, you know, we have white privilege. And um, so we say, no, no, we don't have white privilege. It says, no, but because you say you don't have white privilege, that shows that you actually do have white privilege. But then you say, well, that's circular logic. It says, oh, but... but because you say it's circular logic, you have white privilege. Like, it's impossible to deny the facts. You can't win. You can't even it's, have it's the discussion. A, it's the quicksand, right? Once you enter the quicksand, you're going down. There's no way yeah. to come out of it. Uh, I, I once reviewed a paper in a pretty prestigious journal. Uh, I won't mention which journal it is to protect its anonymity. Uh, where the, the paper that I was reviewing might have been the most grotesquely racist thing that I'd ever read. It was basically a paper that said that when you administer to people 
a scale to sort of measure their white privilege and hence their latent racism, if it comes out that they don't exhibit any of these things as measured by the inventory that the researchers were using, that itself, as you said, was a manifestation of their racism. So there was no right. So if you answered the questionnaire and it showed that you're racist, you're racist. Well, therefore you're racist. If it showed that you weren't, that showed that you were racist. And so I had written, I mean, I've thought about at some point releasing my review, <laughs> uh, but I actually don't, I don't know if the, what the ethics are. Yeah. And actually I should find out because Technically, it's supposed to be confidential, but it's confidential in the sense that to the extent that the sub, the one who submits the paper wants to be anonymous, fine. And I don't know who that is. It's, it's blind. It's double blind. But yeah. my words, right? Why would that be? I mean, there are some people who actually sign their reviews, right? They don't want it to be anonymous. And so I've actually thought about at some point, it would be quite instructive for me to release verbatim my review because it was the most scathing review that has ever existed in the annals of science i can imagine but gad where where on earth does this come from that this post-factual you know world that we we, we're living in i mean it's not post-factual because i mean facts still exist but people just dismiss facts immediately um you know experiences and narratives on what counts not what can be proven or or not proven where does it start where where did uh, where's the inception of this this these weird ideas so there are several possible sources, one of which would be another phenomenon that I often uh, criticize and attack, and that's postmodernism and all of its offshoots, right? So postmodernism in academia, this is not the same thing as, say, if you criticize art in a postmodernist way. There, there are different meanings. Postmodernism in, in the context of uh, academia uh, really refers to the idea that there are no universal truths. Of course, other than the one universal truth, that there are no universal truths. Right. Uh, and, and, and therefore, what basically ends up happening with postmodernism is everybody's position is equally valid. Everything is subjective. Uh, anything that I read, even though it is randomly generated gibberish, uh, might have meaning to me because I idiosyncratically... Uh, pulled out some meaning from it, right? I mean, it's, I don't know if you are familiar with this. Are you familiar with SoCal's hoax? Do you know what that I, is? I was just about to mention it, yes. You, you mentioned okay, do, it. Do you want to mention your, it? Well, basically, he wrote a complete a paper which was complete gibberish um, for for himself. Uh, and and to, I think it was to, to prove that peer review was a bit flawed. I can't remember his intentions at the time. But he said... Well, sorry, sorry go ahead. No, no, please, Gad, go ahead. You know more no, about was, it than I, me. I was going to say that it, it's not so much that he wanted to show that peer review in general was flawed, is that he wanted to show that postmodernism was nonsensical, right? right. And, and in that sense, then, of course, the peer review process is going to be flawed because you are peer reviewing garbage, okay? And so basically, he's a physicist, and so he created a, a, a postmodernist article about gravity, and you know, it's, just, it's hilarious to read. Uh, and of course, they accepted it in one of the leading postmodernist journals. And of course, they they very much like the idea that here's a physicist, right? I mean, a a, a natural scientist on the hierarchy of the sciences, yeah. a physicist. That's a serious guy, mm. and he's getting into our bullshit. And, <laughs> and so they they accepted it. So then he went back and said, "Oops, guys, I've got something to admit to you. It was nonsense." Their response, going back to what we said earlier about the infinite, quicksand, yeah was, well, that proves nothing. Our reviewers read it and extracted meaning from it. So this is not a fatal blot to postmodernism. On the contrary, it shows how enriching postmodernism is. So it's just, so I think, so to answer your question in a long-winded way, I think that movement has so infected the mind, because most of the social justice warriors who are on campuses usually are not studying uh, mathematics. No, of course and, not. And, no, right? or, or engineering. Or, or neuroscience. Gender studies. And, and I, exactly. And actually, I'd, I'd be very curious to know, I mean, anecdotally, I think it's, it's astoundingly clear that that's true, but it would be good if, 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 if someone actually did the empirical study to demonstrate this, right? People in neurosciences and brain sciences and in biology and in psychology and mathematics uh, don't have time for this silliness. Uh, they do believe that there are certain universal truths and they're trying to understand them. And therefore, you get people who are ideologically bent, the social justice warriors, who are then given a framework 
that's completely nihilistic, right? I mean, anything makes sense, right. nothing makes sense, yeah. everything is relative, and therefore it's all on steroids. Let the lunacy begin. Yeah, and these these people who uh, seem to have terrible ideas uh, and very weird understandings of how the world works uh, end up as professors, uh, and it, it makes a farce of the academic system as well because uh, certainly uh, they will hate me for saying this, but a, a gender studies or diversity studies professor. I don't think just holds nearly as much weight as a professor in, in neuroscience or professor in psychiatry, psychology, uh, or any of those kinds of fields, an engineering professor. Um, it just seems to be uh, that it's made up gibberish, um, and they sit in their own echo chambers making uh, their own little experts of these things, which no one else buys into. Well, so let me let me just be charitable and sort of modulate or delimit <laughs> that's, your. That's me. I'm not charitable. <laughs> no, so let me. Well, I could also not be charitable, but let, let, I just want to be fair to this issue, this point. It's not so much that there are some issues that are more worthy of studies than others. For example, because if if you think that way, then you might say, well, somebody who studies biology is mm. clearly more important than somebody who studies Sanskrit which is a dead, extinct language. Right. So that's not really how we want to create the hierarchy. Rather, my, my, the way that I would sort of add to what you said is, is the field of study that you are tackling one that is rooted in an epistemology that seeks truth? If yes, if it adheres to the scientific method, mm. then I don't care what you're studying because in your small way, you are contributing to the pantheon of human knowledge and that's yeah, fine. Right. Uh, so who am I to say that a number theorist is more important than yet another Shakespearean uh, scholar? That's fine. You're both contributing. Sure. The problem with gender studies and all those other bullshitters is that they're not really driven by the pursuit of truth. They don't have an epistemology of truth-seeking. They're ideologically driven. And so by the very definition of that, they're anti-scientific. That, and that's why those fields are referred to as anti-science, right? Because how could you be scientific if you start with the premise that there are no universal truths, mm. everything, right? I mean, then you're, then you're already... <coughs> you know, destroying the idea of the scientific method. Hmm. Um, so I think that's the problem with those guys, is that it's yeah. all ideology, if, no epistemology. If I can add to that, it's that, uh, you know, even someone studying Sanskrit um, would uh, add to the knowledge as you speak and uh, speak of, and they're also um, – it progresses mankind. So the the greater we grow in terms of what we know about ourselves, what we know about our history uh, and our future, uh, that progresses us as as humanity. Um, I just look at a lot of these areas of study and I don't see how they add value to the progress that we would want to achieve as much as they consider themselves progressives. Uh, well, and, and to add to your addition, not only are they not adding any knowledge, they're actually poisoning the well of knowledge, right? Because – for example, if you start with the premise that there are no, as, as is the case in, by the way, you shouldn't say women's studies. It's women with a Y, right? Don't, right. don't write it W-O-M-E-N because that includes men in the thing. So it's women, right? Uh, were you aware, by the way, of that? Yeah. Unfortunately, that And I'm also, it drives me nuts because I'm a scientist. So the fact that they've taken um, cis um, as a, uh, which is a scientific term. It has nothing to do with uh, with your yeah. the sexuality, and they've they've used it used all kinds of scientific terms to uh, bastardize uh, these definitions. Is is it drives me nuts? But yes, I'm aware of the the why and women. You, you're, good. <laughs> uh, and so I was going to say that uh, if you start off with the premise that there are no innate biological differences between the sexes, other short of their genitalia. And everything else is socially constructed, is due to socialization. Mm. Well, that is a profoundly, demonstrably false position. I mean, biologists defined humans as being a sexually dimorphic species. I mean, that's the way we're defined as a species, right? Indeed. So, so if you start with that premise as your starting point, and then you're now going to build in your tree of knowledge, you're going to start with that root node and build from there, hmm. then anything that starts after bullshit is bullshit, right? <laughs> and so that's, that's the problem with these fields is that they're not and, – and actually I'm, I'm writing right now, I'm just revising uh, a paper uh, for a, you know, one of the leading uh, journals in, in my field where I actually talk about these trees of knowledge – 
And I basically refer to the notion that what makes physics, chemistry, and biology uh, prestigious, or more so than sociology and some of the other fields, is not that because physicists are inherently smarter or more sophisticated than sociologists. It's because they operate, and I actually made this point uh, in my first book, uh, it's because they operate within trees of knowledge that are consilient. And consilient is a, is a beautiful term that very few people sort of know what it means, and it was reintroduced into the common lexicon by E.O. Wilson, the famous Harvard biologist. Uh, it refers to unity of knowledge. So when you talk about consilience, mm. you could say that physics is more consilient as a discipline than sociology, yeah. precisely because you know chemists are not debating whether some believe in the periodic table and others are anti-periodic yeah, table. Right, right? Yeah. But in the social sciences, the starting point could already send you to completely different parallel universes. Mm. That's the problem with the social sciences and certainly the humanities. And, and unfortunately, what happens is a lot of, a lot of people who, who, you know, who go to university and can't get, in, got, can't get into the, the hard sciences, they end up doing these sort of things, uh, the social sciences, and then they believe they're right. And then they, then they become journalists and write in mainstream media, and then these ideas just get just populate and pollute the social discourse in in a particular place. I mean, we see it here. The only people who talk about white privilege are journalists and comedians. Com yeah, com comedians. And they, look, they're not very funny, but they call themselves comedians. Yeah, they're not very funny at all. But it's only journalists, comedians, and people who you know who write books about race. Um, right. As someone told me on Twitter, you know, the brain surgeon is not is not ending his surgery and then going on Twitter to tell me that I'm a, you know, I have white privilege. No okay. one says that to me except for journalists on Twitter. And it's no, I mean, it, so the people, it's so the people who disseminate ideas in the country are the ones that have this poisonous ideology. It's 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 ironic, I'm afraid. It's, and they're the ones who are the most politically engaged, right? Right. So, for example. People have asked me, you know, are these social justice warriors walking around, you know, in every, you know, hallway of every department? And of course, the answer is no. Yeah. But it doesn't take 100% of a population to terrorize everybody, right? It takes a very few, very committed, very loud, very motivated people to poison the well for everybody, right? I mean, it took 19 guys to bring down the Twin Towers. It didn't take 33 million people, right? right. And so that, and, and so I think that's the, 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 the 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 blowback that you sometimes get from people where some someone says, well, aren't you uh, exaggerating uh, the incidence of you know the the density of these people? Well, nobody is saying that at every in every university, you know, seventy percent of the people are social justice warriors. But you don't need seventy percent. You just need typically they are always in the student unions. They are always in the student governments, mm. right? They are the one, right? As you said, at the, the forefront of protests, which we've seen here. Exactly. It's not the guy who is studying for his neuroscience exam tomorrow who is uh, coming to protest whatever. And therefore, what you end up getting is this sort of grotesque uh, self-selection bias, and they control the narrative. And, and I, I'd like to think that, if I may say, guys like me, and now I think there's a growing number of professors who are uh, finding their testicles somewhere hidden in their pants, and they're starting to slowly come out and speak against this. And I think all it takes is... This movement to this blowback movement to come into effect, and mm. hopefully the problem can be resolved. Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you say there's some professors sort of getting on board. Um, we've we've we had an interesting situation at the University of Cape Town. I know you spoke to Gareth about this, yes. um, but essentially, um, we've got a we've got, we had that situation where a number of students decided that a statue. Uh, the statue was of Cecil John Rhodes. Um, the movement is quite worldwide known now because they made a noise at Oxford as well. It's called Rhodes Must Fall. Um, they decided that walking past the statue every day was oppressive. Um, Triggering. Uh, triggered them and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the statue needed to go. Uh, the statue was reminiscent of uh, someone that had stolen land and was barbaric. Of course, the fact that he lived 200 years ago and, and that was – he was actually not particularly a bad guy for his time. Um, that's out the window. And so they make a big noise about the statue going to the point that um, at the meeting that uh, the council of the university was having to decide what they were going to do with the statue, halfway through the meeting, these students stormed in and were singing – uh, basically, uh, one, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but essentially one professor, one bullet. Um, 
that was the type of threat of of violence that was was where it took place in this council meeting. Eventually, they kick everyone out, um, and about 180. Uh, I'm sure I'll get corrected on the number, but it was in that region. 180 people have a vote on what they're going to do, and. Uh, of 180, 179 academics who are pro- supposedly free thinkers uh, and 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 have their own views, beliefs, etc., uh, backgrounds, informing everything they do. 179, if it was 180, it, the numbers might be slightly off, but 179 voted get rid of the statue, and only one person voted against. Um, which, if you think about it, is just so unrealistic in terms, especially in such a controversial sort of topic. Um, with so so many different varied issues, uh, and so we haven't actually seen that. We haven't seen our academics stand up against any of this. In fact, our academics, unfortunately, are leading the charge as part of the regressive left. Well, yeah, I mean, I was trying to be a bit more optimistic, <laughs> but uh, thank you for that infusion of pessimism. <laughs> uh, well, well, there's actually to 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 build on your example or your case. Uh, there was a recent uh, case that I weighed in on. Uh, on social media, where this dean, uh, so again, I might get some of the details, yeah. you know, wrongly, but it doesn't matter. I think it was at Seattle University, where uh, the dean had been asked by someone uh, to recommend some uh, reading, uh, you know, reading list, and she uh, referred to a book that is written by a black gentleman who is a civil rights activist, and the book. The title of the book is, we can't say the word, it's the N-word, right? And so she, so in responding to the question of a book that someone should read, as written by a black gentleman who's a civil rights activist, her uttering the title of that book eventually led to a cascade of, you know, Occupy stuff. And I think she was now either fired or she resigned Mm. or whatever it is. So, I mean, this is the kind of lunacy you're getting, right? I mean, you know, had she said the N-word, then that would not have been triggering. It would not have been aggressive. But to the extent that she actually said those the word, uh, it's just, it's it's, it's maddening. We've had, uh, it's interesting because these tactics, and we've had a guest who, who described it quite well. He said the left eventually eats themselves. So... Um, what's now happening in, in sort of aftermath of that story I told you is that uh, as a result of a lot of the student protests and, and stuff that's happened, uh, burning down buildings and, 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 and um, burning art and all kinds of things like that, um, the university has lost funding and had to cut back on many things. And so one of the things that's happening is they're cutting back on, on staff. Um, and so a lot of the people who voted uh, to kind of do this uh, are going to end up losing their jobs as a result of something that never needed to happen. Well, I'll draw I'll draw an analogy to your sort of uh, uh, self cannibalization, right? Uh, in in when you when you look at s- several Islamic contexts, right? Uh, you you wonder why is it that when everybody in a country is uh, Muslim, uh, there's still massive killing? Well, because there's always I can always separate the world into the good and pious Muslim and the really bad one, right? Now, it could be split according to doc- doctrinal lines. It could be Shia versus Sunni. It could mm. be other. It could be you're not orthodox enough. It could be you didn't do ABC. But I, I can always turn back to people who are my co-religionists and then kill them because they're not truly my co-religionists. And that's exactly the same mindset with the social justice warriors, right? Uh, then they start, once there's nobody else to go after, once the slave owners no longer exist, yeah. then I need to find someone else to lynch. And guess what? I'm going to go after other social justice warriors who simply are not progressive enough and they'll be lynched. And so it's the exact same mechanism. Well, that's what's happening to Charmaine Greer, um, you know, a second wave feminist, very famous. I think she wrote The Female Eunuch in the 70s, which was a, you know, a very, very popular book about feminism. And now she says, no, trans trans people aren't real women, you know, men who trans, you know, who transfer to women, they're not re- actually real women because they don't have the experience, lived in the experience of oppression of being a woman. And now she's being deplatformed all over the world uh, for saying this. It, it is quite it's unbelievable. Whereas she's, she was at the forefront of feminism a mere 30 years ago. Arguably she was a catalyst for a lot of these feminist ideas that are coming through now. And now she's being, you know, deplatformed. It's, it's great. It's incredible. I mean, I guess you've, you've heard of the case, uh, 
where Richard Dawkins was deplatformed yeah. uh, simply for retweeting something, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, we, we really are at the stage now where, as you said, you know, the, the, the mouth is eating its own tail. It's, it's happening. We see it. So I'd like to think that eventually it sort of eats itself that it all disappears. It disappears. I don't know if it, yeah. So, Let's see. So, I, I'm doing my best to ha- make it happen. I mean, might it, because we had a lot of political correctness. It sort of rose in the, in the 90s. Uh, and then it seemed to die down in the early 2000s. I, I can't really pinpoint it. Um, and then now we've got this last sort of three, four years of sort of social justice. It's like it's not even politically correct. It's 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 politically correct on steroids. Um, well, it's regressive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what's become the regressive left. And it's uh, it's it, it, it seems like we kind of kill it for a while, and then it it rises again. I'm just wondering what the, the turning point will be. I mean, I truly believe that uh, it's it's an issue of cowardice. Uh, I mean, if you if you told me what is the the thing that has shocked me, I'm I'm 51 years old now. What is one of the things that has been most shocking in living for 51 years and seeing about human nature? And that is, well, and I would answer is that the default value of most humans is pathological cowardice, and so much so that I think on Dave Rubin. Uh, one of my appearances on Dave Rubin Report, I, I said that, you know, just name dropping there. No, no, not name dropping. <laughs> he, he, he should name drop that I was on the show, <laughs> not, the way, not the other way around, son. Let's get the hierarchy straight. Uh, no, but uh, my, my point was hmm. that uh, we should add cowardice uh, as one of the seven, you know, to the seven deadly sins because it is truly a pathology that most people can't escape from. And that ultimately leads to many of the ills that we see, right? If people rise up early in some negative process, then it will take a lot less bloodshed to solve it than if we wait down the line where we will have to solve it, but it's going to involve a lot more bloodshed. And that's the exact same thing that I argue when it comes to some of the incursions of, you know, some of the nasty strains of of Islam that's happening in the West. I mean, at some point, to answer your question about what's it going to take for people to wake up, Mm. at some point, people will wake up, right? Mm. And the problem is when they wake up at time T plus X, it'll be a much worse outcome than if they wake up today because today we could solve it peacefully. And and that's what I tell people that really when I I, uh, speak about these issues, it's really to stop violence, right? I, I came from a world that is... Mm. of a level of brutality that you can't imagine in movies. I mean, the, the Lebanese mm. civil war that I escaped. Yeah. So I know what happens in those countries. I don't need to look at, at the news reports. I've, I've lived it. That was my childhood, right? Now, it's going to happen here, maybe in 30 years, maybe in 100 years, maybe in 300 years, mm. but not everybody will be happy to go along to the abyss of darkness quietly into the abyss, yeah. right? Men will wake up, and when they do wake up, it's going to be nasty. So let's solve it today rather than solve it down the the line with more bloodshed. But, yeah, I mean, is it cowardice or are people – they may be afraid to speak out, but they they show their hand in other ways. And I would argue perhaps the rise of Donald Trump is one manifestation of that. Here's a guy who shoots a bit from the hip. He's not terribly bright. His policies are a bit shit. Sorry, they're a bit – not not great. He's not he's not a good politician in terms of uh, reverence and insight and and things like that. But he's not afraid to say what's on his mind. He's not, he's he's what he says is what he believes. Um, so so people are too scared to you know come out say at um, at a at a rally, for example, like for Mizzou when social justice warriors took over campuses, they don't go meet the social justice warriors, but they show their hands by you know voting Donald Trump because he stands for everything they're against. So. Is that one way to curtail social justice in a way? I would say that that's too tepid. And let me now uh, bring in some uh, theorizing from evolutionary (laughs) biology. You ready? Ready. ready. Here we go. go. So so there's there's something known as the handicap principle in biology or also known as Zahavian signaling. So let's take the classic example is the peacock's tail. So I'll use that one, but there are many other examples. The peacock's tail has to be burdensome. It has to be costly. It has to actually reduce the survivability of the peacock for it to be an honest signal. In other words, for the hens to say, oh, I'm going to pick this guy with the biggest tail, it has to be costly to him. Because what he is basically signaling is, look, 
despite the fact that it increases my chances of falling prey to a predator, I'm still here. Therefore, I must be a good genetic specimen. Pick me. Therefore, for a signal to be honest, it must be costly. So the bullshitter who goes with a face mask uh, so that he's not seen tepidly sits in the back row to, to, to agree with Donald Trump is actually not engaging in costly signaling. The guy... You're looking at him who puts everything on the, who puts everything sure. on the line, yeah. both professionally and personally. That's a costly signal because I've got skin in the game, right? I'm mm. not a careerist. I can get death threats, I, but I'm in the game. So, so no, I think that yes, there is a whole wide range of possible responses that people have, but the the time for sort of tepid, cheapish responses is now long gone, it's time to have a much more forceful uh, response to this reality. And the reality is, this is our culture. People are welcome to come from any place. They could be brown, blue, purple, tall, short, fat, Muslim, Jew, non-believer. As long as once you step on our shores, you abide 100% to every single one of our laws. Not a single inch of accommodation will be granted. Otherwise, you know your way back to where you came from. Once you approach things with that confidence, then people have a choice. Yes, I want to abide by this. No, I don't want to abide by this. So the sort of tippy-toeing stuff is only going to lead us to the bloodshed that I was talking about earlier. That That's quite vivid, and it does make a lot of sense. Um, another thing, though, I mean, do you think people understand the dangers of social justice warriors. I mean, we have spoken about it before, but many people I speak to and I'd say, what do you think of whatever, white privilege? And then like, I have no idea what you're talking about. They have no concept of what social justice is. They just see a few students on campuses, you know, having a bit of a row, but they're like, that's what students do. Like, it's not, it's not that much of an issue. So many people are, not, are unaware of, of, of the well, dangers. I, right. And I think, I think the reality is that most people are not sufficiently engaged in these discussions, right? Even for something like the civilizational threats that we're facing, most people are busy, you know, making sure that they have the right ingredients for tonight's dinner, right? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, I've got to, I've got to prepare for uh, my prom dance tomorrow, so I got to get my suit. I'm getting married next week. Uh, my child is about to have his bar mitzvah. I've got to purchase the tomatoes. Let somebody else handle this big issue, right? There's enough people out there who hopefully will handle it for us. I'm busy leading my busy life, right? And that's the problem. And that's what I refer to as uh, a manifestation of the tragedy of the commons, right? Uh, don't diffuse the responsibility to others. Not everybody is going to be a hero. Not everybody responds in the same way. But everybody should do their small part to the grand battle. And frankly, I've received endless, innumerable messages from people that say that precisely because they've heard me speak in the manner that I just did, that they've decided to start taking on their friends on Facebook. And they've been unfriended by 30 people. <laughs> and now they, they feel actually cathartic. They feel as though they're no longer holding back for fear of being called a xenophobe or a racist or an Islamophobe. So what we need to basically do is compel people that everybody has a voice, however small or however big. Just contribute peacefully, politely to the discourse. Don't leave it for others to fight the battles for you. Now, that's quite interesting because we are the only so-called, if I may say, classically liberal, libertarian podcast. I'm an anarchist myself, and Jonathan's a classic liberal, uh, anarchist capitalist. We're the only one in the country by by, by miles. So, uh, mainstream media is completely left. Uh, radio, yeah. completely left. Um, what else? I mean, even books, book sales, magazines, everything that is sold in this country that does relatively well is is left-wing. Completely, we're the, we're the first ones to be, may I, dare I say, right wing. And when we first put the proposal to Gareth, who owns the station, he said, "You know, do you really think anyone's actually going to bother listening to you?" Yeah, because I mean, these are they're not dangerous ideas; they they common sense ideas. They're but, just not popular, but they're not, and certainly right. in our in our society, right. um, and. You know, a lot of the ideas we have, uh, freedom of speech is unpopular in, in South Africa at the moment, which is, there's so many ironies there. But uh, uh, freedom of speech is, is unpopular. Um, not uh, considering yourself part of some sort of larger collective group is unpopular. Wanting to be an individual is just completely out of the question. 
Um, you know, but the problem we face is that we've had we've had decades of of national socialism in a way through apartheid, and the the effects on the psyche of people that it had had is is taking a very long time to disintegrate. People still believe in, in binaries, you know, the rich and the poor, or the black and the white, or whatever whatever binaries they want. The employed and unemployed. Yeah, there's, there's very little so sense, sense of the individual so, in this country. So, what I say, so, so, so the South African unique context, what you're saying, in a sense, creates a more fertile environment for some of the mindsets that we've been t- critiquing, right? Is, is that really what you're basically saying, right? Absolutely. Identity is very important, but especially group identity. If you feel like you belong to something bigger than you, it's much more popular. If you're an individual, you're you know, call, just called a racist or whatever the case might be. Yeah. The best thing about being called a racist, you get called it once. Then you just accept it, right? It's another badge on your, lap, right. on your lapel. I mean, there's nothing you can do to fight... Well, those insults, well, the, you just carry on. The with problem life. with those those words is that they've lost any meaning. So, right. um, you know, when you call everyone, a, you know, the the crying wolf story, you know, when everything's a wolf, uh, then when there's really a wolf, no one's coming. Uh, and so um, this is no different here or anywhere else in the world. But uh, racist, xenophobe. I mean, if you voted for Brexit in, in Britain, you, you're you're a racist xenophobe. Uh, I, I, um, I did I did a, I did a sad truth tip on exactly. Yeah, that. so it's more than 17 million people are, are all racist. Um, and of course, you know, uh, I saw one um, uh, sort of graph which showed uh, how people voted based on age, and then showed how many years they had left to live. Uh, based on the sort of lifetime average in the country. So effectively saying that if you're older, you have less right to... Well, you were older and, and you were close to suffering from dementia. So you were a xenophobe, <laughs> Nazi, elderly, demented person. Yeah. That's the only way that could explain why people would want to leave Britain, uh, leave uh, the EU. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's I... completely uh, obtuse in, in thinking. I was going to mention you, 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 you brought up the point of freedom of speech. Yesterday on Twitter, I had some just gigantic buffoon, just unbelievable. <laughs> he, so he, he referred to me and, and, and generally as, as, a, as a Jewish person, a kike, right? Yeah, I love that. The alt-right. But did you see the exchange between I, – I, so, I, I saw the first part, but tell us. So, so I tried to engage. I mean, which, I mean, to a fault. I mean, really, I need to find a way to not engage with so many people. And as a matter of fact, people write me privately and say, what are you doing? You should yeah. be unreachable. But it's just maybe part of my personality mm. to, 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 you know, to, to get out of the ivory tower, to engage people yeah. to a fault. And so uh, after a few backs and forths where clearly this guy was the reincarnation of, of uh, you know, somebody from the Nazi party. And I don't invoke the Hitler analogy lightly, but I mean... Uh, Godwin's I, law is stupid. I, Some people are like Hitler. Exactly. Uh, and so so I, I said, okay, sorry, son, it's time to go on mute into the dark, dark <laughs> abyss of quiet. And I muted him and blocked him. Now, so I can't see anymore what he's saying, but then other people, I could see that they're engaging him. Mm. And he's basically arguing that I am such a hypocrite because on the one hand, I champion free speech, and yet I am censoring him. So, All right. <laughs> I mean, right. I mean, so how – and the term that I use is, I mean, there are different degrees apparently of being lobotomized. But in his case, I mean, it's more than lobotomized. I mean, his whole brain has been excised <laughs> from his cranial thing, right? Because, I mean, to be, to a, to be able to argue that my not willing to stand while you hurl – a tsunami of, of Jew yeah, hatred at me yeah. is a manifestation of not granting you your right of free speech. Yeah. It must be such a profound misunderstanding of what freedom of speech yeah. is. And the reality is many people suffer from that. Yeah. You can say what you want, but I don't have to listen to you. But you, you have a right to say it. Exactly. Which and you, I said which that. I said that there's, there's no problem. I mean, you, you could say kike. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not censoring you by walking away from the hurl, right? Yeah. So. 
Uh, absolutely. The, the, there's no sort of uh, sense in, 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 in a lot of those conversations. You should uh, just basic Twitter tips. Uh, don't engage with eggs and pretty much anyone with less than 100 followers. Just it's not worth it. I promise you. Uh, that, you, you know what? I'm going to try to stick to that. There's, very there's probably, you know, there's a, there's a margin of error there. But on, on average, it serves me well. Every time I engage with an egg or someone with less than 100 followers, I regret it. I think maybe we should put the 100 at much higher. Uh, to be safe, um, it, maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, yeah. Well, look, so it depends how much validity you want uh, to, to to the opinion. Uh, I think uh, your confidence interval will increase the more uh, followers they have. Right, right. Fair enough. Right, Gad. Do you have any questions for us? I mean, we, we, we've uh, been we've been dominating the the, the interview part, but uh, on your side, any burning only, issues? Right. My only question is: Why is it that when I go to my mailbox every day? I don't see a paid ticket to Cape Town waiting for me in my mailbox. That's my question to you. Well, we just explained, you know, the, the Cape Town uh, Senate for the University. Um, <laughs> so I'm not welcome there, you're saying. Forevermore, uh, I am persona non grata in Cape Town. Probably not. You'll probably walk in and you'll be pelted with tomatoes and who knows what else. Um, I mean, despite the fact that you are on the oppression scale, you, you, you at the top, you know, as a, as a, as an Arab, as an Arab Jew who fled his homeland, I mean, it's a bit... Thank, not... thank you for not saying overweight, but I'll say it for you. Oh, right. No, that's fat shaming. We don't do that here at all. <laughs> um, so, no, Cape Town's a great city. Just don't go to university. Then you'll be safe. Yeah, no, I, I'm actually very... Where are you guys, by the way? We're where in are Johannesburg. Okay. Yeah. Now, as, as I understand it, you'll correct me, that's really sort of just a metropolis, not yeah. not particularly charming or anything, right? No, so not particularly charming, but essentially, well, I like it. I mean, you yeah, know, I've lived wonderful. here my whole life. Yeah. Um, but yeah. uh, it's not uh, particularly beautiful or, or in, a, in, in the traditional sense. Um, it's very much a work city. Uh, our province, which is actually a very small province, um, where Johannesburg is situated, uh, produces most of uh, the sort of GDP of the country. Um, and then somewhere like Cape Town is more of a laid back place. There is business there and, and, and work, but it's much more relaxed and chilled. Uh, Cape Town in itself is a very beautiful city, um, and the surrounds. Uh, they do have their problems though. They've got a lot of gang violence, um, and, uh, they're one of the sort of stabbing capitals of the world. Um, but not sort of in the sections where you would, you would go as a tourist, um, right. in sort of the lower income areas. Uh, which is one of one of the big problems, um, but but it, well, it's a beautiful city. It's well worth visiting. Yeah, I was telling Gareth yesterday that uh, you know in the the images that I've seen of Cape Town, it, it feels very much like a place that I, I could call home because it sort of reminds me of both Lebanon yeah. and uh, Southern California, well, where I've also well, lived well in my family. In summer, about forty percent of the population is European. So uh, uh, lots of Germans, uh, French, uh, Belgians uh, who have uh, holiday homes and, and basically go there for, for, for the, the winter in Europe, the summer. And, and there's a just, juxtaposition between sort of the ocean and then these big mountains, uh, which you also find in Lebanon, right? I mean, one of the, yeah. the beautiful things about Lebanon is that people used to always say that, you know, you could be at the beach where it's scorching hot and then you could drive for an hour and you could go skiing in the mountains of Lebanon. Yeah. And you get a similar sort of topography in Southern California and I think at Cape Town. So, so I'm drawn to the place, if only because it sort of reminds me of, uh, of my hometown. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful city. It's just it's just very insular. So pe- people who come from yes. Cape Town are those very preppy white people, if you know what I mean. It's uh, like Connecticut in the U.S. Yes, uh, I would imagine. Ah, I see. So, yeah. okay. so I can never live up, up, uppity, uppity. Very much so. I mean, very proud of being from Cape Town, even though they had nothing you know to do with with being born there. But very, um, it's nice to go on holiday. To live there, it's it's far too too slow. Gotcha. In most uh, ways. Got it. I, I think I, I've exhausted my questions. I don't have any other questions for you. <laughs> no, what's done? Yeah, we've yeah. done. We've done well. We've done well. We can't complain. Yeah. Um, thank great. you so much for for coming on the show. We my really pleasure. appreciate it. Um, it's great to have you. And thank you for having us on yours. Uh, yes, yeah, right. It was uh, a great uh, uh, white privilege. I mean, just a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> March forward. I wish you all the best of success with your show and more generally with the whole uh, hub that. Uh, Gareth is trying to create. Yeah, absolutely. Best of luck, guys. Indeed. Thanks very much. Thanks Thank so you, much, Gareth. Gareth. Speak to you care. soon. Bye-bye. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Right, so Ramon, that's the uh, end of another good show. And uh, any final remarks? Uh, no. Uh, well, one down. Joe Rogan is next, no doubt. Uh, and Milo. Joe Rogan, on, on, on Milo. Our, on our little podcast uh, from South Africa. Yeah, I know. Well, Joe Rogan, Milo, Dave Rubin. Um, all of them. Ben Shapiro. Um, we're giving them all. Yeah, we're, we're going to hit these Americans hard. So uh, Gad will probably, uh, probably give us hell for calling him an American. The, the singular Canadian there. Oh, we'll keep, uh, Stephen Crowder, yeah. He's, oh, he's Stephen another Crowder. Canadian. Oh, yes, right. of course. Good of guy. course. Have you watched his, uh, his uh, Bob Ross uh, clip? Do you know who Bob Ross is? Uh-uh. No idea. Oh, you, you need to go check this out. Uh, uh, he basically, and I actually thought it was... I mean, I hate to say it, but it was very courageous of him to do it. It shouldn't be courageous to satirize any religious figure. But he basically took on the persona of this famous uh, public television guy called, I think, Bob Ross, who would do these paintings. And what he did is he spoke in his in his form of affectation. He donned a similar sort of curly hair thing, and he basically drew uh, Muhammad with Aisha and so on with some really... Uh, spicy content uh, that really takes quite a bit of courage to do. So you might want to check it out because I think it's gone really viral. Yeah, right? nothing seems to scare him too much. Yeah, no, he's a he's the real. Well, he's he's exactly the type of guy that is not going at it with any uh, you know timidity. Let's yeah. put it this way. Yeah, that's for sure. No filters. All right, thanks so much for listening. Um, We will catch you on the next uh, episode of the Renegade Report. Great guests coming up uh, in the month of July, so obviously Gad now, and uh, we've got some really good guests for the next two shows, uh, our solo show at the end of the month. Uh, And we will catch you next time. Thanks so much.